0: welcome to episode 50 of Literary Disco Q&A. On today's episode, thanks to poor scheduling on my part and poor eating on Todd's part, we are once again postponing our read of Sherry Fink's Five Days at Memorial, and instead, we'll be taking listener questions. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, our essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel. Hello, Julia. Hey, Ryder. What's going on? Not much. So you want to uh, you want to explain a little bit about oh. what's happening today? The... Oh,
1: what's that? <laughs> oh. Is that the oh ghost of Todd Goldberg?
0: It's today's special guest, Todd Goldberg. I'm
1: back. I'm back from my emergency.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so here's what happened. We're not punking you guys. Um, we were in the middle of recording an episode about five days at Memorial. And Todd actually started throwing up while we were recording. That's how he it felt was, about
0: uh, the book. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was something of a surprise. We didn't even know what was I, happening. Todd just was like, uh, hold on a second. Threw down his headphones and then he came <laughs> back like a minute and a half later. He's like, guys, I just threw up. <laughs> it
1: was uh, it was disconcerting. So I, I was in Seattle for the AWP conference and um, I had eaten... Pretty much everything I'd come in contact with in Seattle that day. And then just suddenly started barfing. And uh, that didn't stop for about four hours. And then I was fine. And then I continued eating my way through Seattle.
2: So we canceled the episode. And um, we're going to pick it up at another time. And uh, up until about two hours ago, we thought it was just going to be me and Ryder. So we solicited a bunch of questions from you guys. And all those questions are really good. And Todd is feeling better and no longer in Seattle. So... He has joined us, and we're going to answer your questions because they're great. And then for our next episode, we'll do five days at Memorial. Sound good? Sounds
1: Why not? And If if I start to get sick, what I'll do is I'll I'll make this noise. Ha-ha! And that's how you know know. I'm about to throw up. Oh,
2: gross. Well, um, so everyone just know that Todd is fine, and you don't have to worry about him ever again. He'll live forever.
1: Well, I know there's at least a few listeners that want me dead, but...
2: Yeah, there are a couple.
1: I met a couple at AWP, actually, though. So before we start, let me just say, so I was at AWP, and I met a bunch of listeners, and the most popular topic of conversation among the listeners was your laugh, Julia, and they wanted to know if your laugh is as infectious in real life as it is on podcasts.
2: (laughs) See, now I want to laugh, but I'm suppressing
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh the other thing they wanted to know was did we really go to Ryder's wedding that was a big question so did you guys really go to Ryder's yes, wedding yes
2: obviously like, <laughs> I, yeah I,
1: I don't know it was like four different people saw me and they said oh my god so did you guys really go or is that just like make believe i said no we we actually went Do to people his wedding. not
0: think we're really friends like that's all just an yeah
2: that's the first listener question are you guys really friends yes we are really friends
0: Every time we
2: record for about half an hour before the podcast, we talk about our regular lives like regular people.
1: Right. We're just normal people, just like you guys, except that we get together on the internet for your enjoyment. (laughs)
2: That's right. And what did you say about my laugh?
1: I said it is infectious and that your laugh makes me and Ryder laugh. And that sometimes (laughs) what happens is just us laughing at each other makes us just laugh even more. Uh, and so they, they said, oh, what, do you guys cut that out? And I was like, no, most of the time it actually we just leave in all minutes of laughter. <laughs> and uh, I saw our, uh, our, our podcast friends at Book Fight, and, uh, and they were all very nice, too. So it was a, it was a very nice time at AWP, and, and I got to meet lots of fans, and I appreciate all of you coming up and, and saying hello. And little did you know, by touching me, you probably got just a hint of the Listeria. Uh, that I had acquired from getting food poisoning. (laughs) So best of luck. Enjoy your time back home at your small liberal arts college.
2: Okay, wonderful. Um, Oh, one more question. Where is AWP next year?
1: Uh, Next year, it's in Minnesota. It's in Minneapolis. So it'll be really fucking cold.
2: (laughs) All right, you guys ready to answer some listener questions? Yes. Yeah. Um, These are great questions, you guys. And I just... I'm speaking to the listeners now, and I just want to apologize because I know we're not going to be able to get to all the great questions. Um, I already cut out a few that were too general. Like, uh, what's your favorite book? That's too general. You'll have to go back and listen to all 50 episodes. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe you could take a guess. (laughs) Um, But I appreciate a question because it's a nice question and a question that i get asked almost every single day but i know that would take up our entire episode here so um i just have a list of um slightly more specific questions and we're just going to talk about books all right so the first one um from uh twitter from someone named rebecca. Hi, rebecca hi rebecca do you prefer to write on an electronic medium such as a computer or a more physical paper mediums such as paper which do you feel is more conducive to creativity how do you guys write
0: I like to carry my typewriter to public places no, I'm kidding. But have you guys <laughs> noticed this trend where people are carrying typewriters into coffee shops? Yes. Oh, God, I saw it. No, little... I have never oh, seen that. Oh, yeah, it's a thing. It's a big hipster thing. It happens in New York a lot, yeah. and then it's happening in L.A. a lot, too. Um, my wife, Alex, was actually at a coffee shop where some, some woman was, like, typing away. To, and it's loud. It's, like, so obnoxious yeah. for everybody else. Um, but I actually, I, you know, I did buy a typewriter. I bought an old typewriter a couple years ago, and for a while there I thought it would be good for me to just... Ha- like type on it and use it to i don't know why i guess because you can't erase was my thinking so it would just forced me to like type a, f- a full page it, my my idea was that i would every day write one like vomit page you know just a page of whatever i wanted to to sort of get into the the groove of writing that lasted about you know three days before i completely <laughs> gave it up but um i still have it i, I just like an old typewriter, but no, I write everything on a computer. I, I'm you know, I've never been a big handwriting my handwriting is horrible, I can't even yeah. read
1: it. Yeah, I write everything on a computer too. And when I was in Seattle actually I saw it must have been someone that was there for AWP. Someone was sitting out in front of the convention center with a typewriter typing up stuff and I was like, Come on now. Yeah. Really? You really you need to do that? Um, but I, I I don't remember the last time I wrote more than my name using a pen. Wow, um, really? And, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I just, I never do. I mean, for, like, right now I'm editing um, my new book, for instance, and, like, you know, I I have to go through track changes with my editor, and I wouldn't first write it out on a legal pad or something and then transpose it to the computer. Um, But I think if, you know, if I had started writing with my hand on paper, it would be a different story. But by the time I was really writing stuff, so, say, By the time I was 15, computers existed and word processors existed. Um, And so it's always just felt like a very natural medium to me.
0: How about you, Julia? Um, I
2: think I I use a lot more paper than you guys do. I've never written out like an entire essay or something by hand, but I will often write The first page and then type it and then go from there you know what i mean so that i'm Mm -hmm. jump-started in that way Um, my problem well i love the computer because i type really fast so i can keep up with my own mind in a way that i can't by hand but the computer is just so full of distractions that in moments of desperation um i will just go to paper and like i mean like literally have to physically leave my house and be in a restaurant or on a train or something. Um, but what I, what I really do, um, a lot, actually, every time I'm writing something any, in any way significant is I will map out by hand, you know, an outline or some kind of like notes and make it really visual. And then when I do go to write it, I have the outline or the notes written by hand next to the computer to the whole process. Hmm. So like I need the paper to visualize things in a completely different way and i also find um editing by hand really satisfying i don't really like track changes i like crossing things out and all that good stuff all right great question three different answers we're doing great so far guys all right <laughs> spirits up don't barf all right <laughs> i'm not
1: gonna barf i'm doing right. good
2: okay i love this question this is from someone named julianne from facebook Um, So she said, I tend to spend hours in a bookstore when I'm buying books, and when I leave, I always have to leave some behind. Yes, we feel your pain. How do you shop for books? Do you head to a certain section first, and how do you narrow down your choices?
1: Oh, wow. Great question. Why don't you go first, Julia?
2: I basically have a compulsion, which is that once I'm in a bookstore and I've committed to buying one book, in my mind, I should buy three (laughs) <laughs> and and this is going to be related to another question that I hope we get to, but um, I always try to buy, like, one fiction and one nonfiction. So I will usually peruse whatever the new selections are, or if there's a staff favorites area, I'll go right to that. Um, I mean, like, if, if you find shopping in a bookstore overwhelming, probably the best possible thing you could do is only shop out of the staff favorites section of a really good bookstore. Yeah, um, totally. That is... So that's what I do first. And then I will, so then I was just shopping the other day and I ended up with, um, the new Dave Eggers novel. Um, and then I was like, oh, well now I have to compulsively find some nonfiction. So then I went to (laughs) (laughs) essays and history books and stuff. And, you know, so that, that's my strategy is to just go around like that. And then I ended up buying Why Read Moby Dick by Nathaniel Philbrick.
1: Because oh, let, let me know. <laughs> it's
2: quite a short book. Someone had to write a book to explain why you had to read Moby Dick. It's apparently great. Um, I will
1: probably read that before I read Moby Dick and then still never read Moby Dick.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, so that's that's my strategy. Staff favorites and then balance your genres. That's that's how Julia shops for books. All
1: right.
0: How about you guys? Uh, I Well, I don't, you know, yeah, staff favorites are... the the place any sort of curation any sort of curated section that is in the front of a bookstore which immediately like I I mean I when I'm thinking about this question I don't actually shop at Barnes and Noble or like any of the big ones anymore like when I go into those stores I'm usually going for either a gift or like I'm looking for one book in particular I don't browse those bookstores Um, but like I usually
1: go into Barnes and Noble to go to the bathroom quite frankly
0: but if I'm going into like a Pals or a Book Soup here in L.A. or Skylight or you know a real bookstore. Um, yeah, the staff picks are usually great. Like whatever the front couple desks are, you know, or front couple uh, counters with um, with books. I usually just spend my time going through that, and then um, I don't know. You, I I usually go to a poetry section because it's manageable, because it's small enough. And um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's where I go if I don't, if I'm not looking for something in particular, I just want to like randomly pick up a book. I'll go to the poetry section and see what names I don't recognize. um, Mostly contemporary poets that I don't recognize. And I'll pick them up and I'll flip through it because you can read uh, a poem pretty quickly, you know, and, and you can decide if you like a poet, a poet, really easily if you're just responding within a couple of pages. You're like, oh, I'm going to buy this. So that's how I've discovered most of the poets that I that I have, contemporary poets, is so I just randomly pick up a book and um, if I respond to one of the poems, I, I buy it. Um, so that's the only thing I would add. Otherwise, mm. I'm you know just like anybody else, wandering around. You know what
1: is weird is that I don't feel compelled to buy books when I'm in Barnes & Noble. I I feel I have to buy a book when I go into an independent bookstore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so even just this past week, I was in, when I was in Seattle, I went into the Seattle Mystery Bookstore, which is this great old mystery bookstore that's been just off of Pioneer Square, for those of you familiar with the area, for years. And I didn't need any books, um, but I wanted to go in the store, and I walked out with three books. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was staff favorites and signed books that I bought that were there, because um, I like to get signed books. But um, generally, you know, in a Barnes & Noble, a lot of times if I'm shopping in Barnes & Noble, I'll go to the, the Discover Great New Writers section, which is at the, the front where all the new releases are and hardcover and whatnot. And I'll look at those Discover Great New Writers. And someone like um, like Ivy Pakoda, who was one of our guests and one of our friends, she had a book that was a Discover Great New Writer uh, pick. And they, they typically have pretty good taste. Um, and, they, and they pick interesting things or things that I'm not usually aware of. Um, you know, I look at the new and in paperback stuff a lot to see basically what I've missed. Um, and I like to look for some of the smaller press stuff, you know, so if, if a press like, say, $2 Radio has a new book out in paperback, um, I will typically buy it because I know they publish, you know, eight books a year, and those eight books are always pretty good. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you don't really see as much anymore, particularly with the rise of eBooks and and with Amazon, is... Seeing an indie press title and and buying it just because of the publisher versus the author. I think who the publisher is has changed how we feel about books. No one gives a shit if a book is from Knopf or Simon Schuster or anything anymore because if you download it as an ebook, you never see the spine. It never matters to you. Um, So you know, I I do look for those for those publishers a lot. But you know, when I'm in Barnes and Noble, um, a lot of times if I'm just killing time and decide I want to buy a book, I will go and look at. The LA Times book review or the New York Times book review from that week, and see what is out there, and then go look for those books and open them up and read them a little bit. Um, it, so I, I have a very sort of methodical process when I'm actually going out book shopping, but I do so much of it online now, you know. I and that that's really targeted book buying. I want a book, I go buy it. Versus that what I used to do, which was just a lot of browsing. I used to love just going through Book Soup and just you know spending hours there, but. I don't have a good independent bookstore where I live. I just have a giant Barnes & Noble that is mostly just selling, you know, coffee and pastries. And you know what I found really is that I, if I have the time to buy a book, um, I always buy it in print. I, don't, I only get ebooks when I need to read that book tomorrow, like I'm doing a book review or something. But otherwise, I always get the hardback book. I just prefer it. I, just, I still do. I don't know if that's probably one of the questions that's coming. It is but one
2: of the questions, of course. I, I still prefer
1: <laughs> a print book far more than I prefer an e-book.
2: Me too. Me too. I was just at an independent bookstore yesterday in New York. One of the best in the entire world. Three Lives. Have you been there, Ryder? It's super tiny. Where is it? It's in the West Village. Um, It's called Three Lives and Company, and it's, it's really small, so it's like perfectly curated, basically. To me, a perfect staff favorites table, which is what they have in Three Lives, is a little table. And... About a third of them I've already read, and they're my favorite books. So that's so I know the rest are just as good. So um anyway, three lives is amazing. And I bought it or I bought um the Goldfinch there by Donna Tart, finally because I just can't stand anymore seeing that everyone else in the world is reading it, and I want to know what they're talking about. So I bought it and best the- <laughs> book
1: cover ever, by the way.
2: Oh, it's so it's great cover, and like the pages feel really nice and it's really big, which I absolutely love. And the woman who sold it to me was, you know, ecstatic about it, but she was also like, it's really big. So I didn't want to carry it around, but then I did. And for me, like carrying around something with weight and heft is part of the joy. It's like, even though, yeah, it's in my purse, but like how, you know, how much am I, I'm not walking 20 miles a day. It's it's nice to have that physical... Object Still for me too Except so. when you're
1: reading it in bed And it's super heavy Like when I was reading Five Days at Memorial it, The book is like 900 pages And it weighs 400 pounds and I was reading it in bed And I, I literally Sliced off my right nipple oh, While reading God. it Just, just Right that. over I was like oh Jesus This
2: is not the right Use and, of literally And that's are, No I literally Are you did. nippling literally, You no longer have a nipple Are you nippling
0: you no uh, no, I just it.
1: have I just have a vacancy Where my nipple used to be Just a <laughs> gouge
0: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know okay. that they're, they're, the studies are coming out now that people are not retaining information that they read in e-form as much oh, as they retain I totally more. believe it. I believe it, too, but I also wonder if that's going to change. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if, yes, we're retaining books better now when we read them in physical form but that's because we have how many years of reading books in physical form under our belt if you're a right. kid growing up on ebooks only from the age of seven on will will like in other words in you know in 20 years these studies going to be irrelevant because everyone that's how you read so you are retaining that or is there something intrinsic to reading text on a page that makes it more retainable i don't know
1: You know what I wonder though is, in reading books on my iPad versus um, print books, and this is probably different with a Kindle, if you just have a regular Kindle that doesn't have your email on it. If I'm reading a book and I get to a boring part, I just go, oh, you know, I'm gonna go check my email or look on Facebook, whatever. Whereas normally if I'm just reading a book, if I get to a boring part or it's not engaging me, I'll just power through it and go on to the next section. But Mm -hmm. as soon as you leave that book and you go look at Facebook or ESPN or whatever it is you're looking at, that's that temporal experience of reading, of being in that scene is gone. Yeah. And I wonder if that has something to do with the retention of information. Sure. Because I, re- I, I don't know if you guys are the same way you probably are, but like I can remember specifically where I was when I was reading X. Oh my book. God, yeah. But yeah. like if you asked me where I was when I was reading um, even a book like Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which I read as an e book, I don't have that experience of where I was, but I remember exactly where I was reading. Uh, five days at Memorial because I was in bed. I was holding it. It was an experience. It sliced off my right nipple, etc. And I, I just—I yeah, wonder. You were in a lot of pain. I was in a lot of pain. <laughs> there was the bleeding. Well, there was you, the but stuff.
0: I mean, the way that memory works is like we're we're going to retain something that's unique, right? Like anything. Mm-hmm. So if every page is actually a unique physical object, right? Like every mm. every page is a unique object. So you can spill right. something on it and change it, or it can rip your nipple off. But like. <laughs> When you're in an ebook form, the page doesn't exist, right? The no. narrative, the text right. exists, but you could change the size. You could, and each page is a replication of the last page, even when you're flipping it, or it's a giant scroll, however you want to set it up to read. But because you know that it's not a unique physical thing, it's probably less memorable in some way. I don't know. And you
1: know the the other thing is, I, I buy a lot of used books too. I love used bookstores, and I love getting a used book and finding something in it, like. Right a spill of coffee or a scrap of paper or a Trying hair even. Right. Whatever. Well, it's like yeah. that Billy
0: Collins poem that I read on the show, mm-hmm. Marginalia. You know, it's all about the, the notes and the margins that you can read.
2: People say to me all the time, <laughs> I i mean, I have gotten very upset about when people casually say to me all the time, like, oh, well, books won't exist and then I will freak out and either yell at them or cry. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, you know, and rip what the they say is, rip <laughs> 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 Um, I will say to them, or they say to me, like, isn't the story the only thing that matters? And I don't even know where to begin with someone like that. Like, is the, is the only thing that matters in our life narrative and not experience and the moment to moment, you know, experience of being alive and out in the world. And, you know, when I would lend people books, I use, I used to travel on so many trains because, um, I just took Amtrak all the time to come visit Greg or to visit friends. And every time I lend someone a book, I know there's a possibility there's a train ticket in there from some point in my life. And I just, I just love that. And there's no, that, that will never be replaced with right. some file. I don't right. know. We're in agreement on this. Yeah. We are. So, um, on the same, on the same note, um, this was a very popular question. A lot of people liked this question. So we have to answer it, okay. answer it. Um, this is from someone named Jana um or maybe Jana, I don't know. Sorry Jana, Jana. Uh she says, hope Todd is okay. I'm He's fine. Fine. Just <laughs> a little bit of uh,
1: upset from the front and the back side.
2: <laughs> okay, I believe the word I would use would be concussive.
1: Concussive would be the no. word I'd use. All
2: right. So, she says, I love asking readers how many books they read at a time. A few years ago when all my siblings were together, we found out that we were all read at least 3 books at a time. Are you monogamous readers or polybookchulous?
1: Hmm. I read a lot of books at one time, but only finish one at a time. If that makes sense. So, for instance, mm-hmm. I'll I'll start reading three books. So, like this week, I I read uh, I finished Five Days at Memorial while while I was reading B.J. Novak's collection of stories. One more thing, and I've been also at the same time uh, flipping through um, the atavist I've been reading a bunch of articles on the Atavist, which I consider like a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm always in the midst of something. And then on top of that, I also have a massive ton of student novels that I'm reading all at one time. Wow. So I have I'm, I'm constantly reading something. But once I'm at that point where I, I'm in the middle, I try to finish one book bef- instead of reading them all continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it I, I wasn't always like that. I think graduate school actually made us made me like that because we'd be reading in graduate school five books a month to do critical writing or whatever, and I'd also have a book that I was reading for pleasure and then I'd be assigned a book review by a newspaper or something, and that just sort of became the easiest way for me to read everything at once. But I miss I miss sort of the solitary time of just reading one thing and, and not having my attention yeah. split up, really.
0: Yeah, that's where I'm actually making yeah. an effort right now to read one book at a time. I would say for the last, because I used to always read at least three books at a time. And what I found was that I was finishing them less and less because I would leave mm-hmm. one in one room, one in another part of my house, or in one in the car, and I would like lose track of where I was and lose interest and fizzle out. So what I've been trying to do is I have a, um, like a pile of books that I am kind of reading, and I keep them on a table mm-hmm. and only take one with me at a time to actually finish. That's my new goal. And it's working out better. I'm, I think I'm... I'm I'm probably reading less, but finishing books more that way, one at a time.
2: I was, I mean, you guys saved me because but right before we started doing the podcast, I was in a downward spiral of only reading a third of everything that ever crossed my eyes. <laughs> and then <laughs> the podcast, because I would literally forget, you know, I'd put it down right. somewhere and then a week later, say, oh, I guess I was reading that, and then I have to start over, which is so disheartening. But doing the podcast has really helped me just read one book often in one sitting five hours before we have to record. Oh,
1: that, that's, um. the authors really want to hear that when they, when they tune in. Here's our deep read. I read it on the shitter right before we got here. Um,
2: never with a guess. Never with a guess. Oh, oh, even better. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed the push to a more focused read. But, yeah, I mean, like, I have books everywhere. Everywhere in here. It's crazy. Um, this one's from Stephanie, and the question is simply, which is more forgivable, weak plots or weak characters? That's
0: a great question. Weak plots. Yeah, weak plots are way more forgivable. We- I agree. I could totally, I can handle a bad plot, but if I, if, a, if a character's thin, nope. Yeah. Because I guess because I understand the function of a plot is to keep me in suspense, to keep me reading. So if you have to, like, kind of force it or whatever, I'm willing to look look past it as long as I believe that these people actually exist in some way.
2: I don't think you can have a strong plot with weak characters. I don't think that's a possi- a possibility.
0: Oh, you
1: totally can. You absolutely can. I mean, I read an awful lot of mystery fiction that has a very strong okay. plot, and the yeah. characters are completely by the numbers. Just too... I think you see it all the time. And I think, you know, the the thing about a weak plot also is that it, we will watch someone fuck up something that we're already familiar with just because we want to see them do it. So if a story is a love story, you know, and it's a love triangle, well, we know what's going to happen at the end. We know that eventually the people that are meant to be will be meant to be together or whatever. They'll be a happily ever after. And we'll go along with it if we're compelled by the people. But... So the, the plot almost is, you know, and there's only really seven plots, right? Isn't that the, the seven mm. conflict plots? Oh,
2: some some say seven, some t- say like 12 or 13. <laughs> but
0: yeah, there's... Yeah. Whatever. I mean, I actually, I'm taking a different tack than you, Todd, but based on what you're saying. Like, I was thinking more if a plot is, well, um, like Gone Girl, you know, or like her books to me are so heavily... Plot it like they're so um they're so ridiculous (laughs) like Mm. the plots get more and more ridiculous as the the book goes on but I'm so invested in the characters and I actually believe in the characters or I'm fascinated enough by these strong characters that I'm willing to look beyond what I think of as heavy-handed plotting so it's actually good plotting in the sense that there's a lot of it and it's strong and it's robust but it's cheesy or predictable or um forced in some way to me so that's kind of what mm-hmm. I think of as a bad plot, but maybe maybe that's not right. That's bad plot as opposed to. But
1: a even movie. something like Mistborn, you know, where we were all like, "Yeah, we we enjoyed oh, right. reading it because we, you know, these characters were sort of spunky, and there were some elements of the plot that we liked." But a lot of it, you know, if they're, they're all of the, the scenes at the debutante balls or what have you, um, right. where <laughs> it was, you know, stuff that we knew fairly well already, but we were interested in this hero's journey of this particular character.
0: Sure. That's so true. To and I think it. I think it's yeah. also
1: the how series fiction in general m- manages to stay relevant So if you're you know Sue Grafton or something and you're on X's for xylophone or whatever and you're still getting 50 million people to read your books well it's because they're invested in your protagonist more than they are invested in whatever crime she's hmm. going to solve
2: interesting All right cool. Um, this question is hilarious. I hope it's from a student. <laughs> it's, it's from Juliana on Twitter, and she says, What literary piece, if any, did you like to refer to when writing papers for school? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Hold on. Can we clarify what that means exactly? Because I, I don't, I mean sure because i would i mean i study english right and so mostly what i wrote was in reference to books so i'm trying to figure out what like does this mean if you're writing a paper in say a history class and you refer to
2: no i think it just means you know what let's combine it with this other question which is similar um (laughs) but less giggly um from katie also on twitter what's one book that you think should always be part of a school's curriculum um, mm. And let's say let's say high school because I think that's about what this, you know, not not college where you're going through various aspects of the canon, right? But yeah, so I, let's, I would say, let's talk about books in schools. I would
1: say easily the one that I referenced the most. So it was my go. We'll go freshman year in college because freshman year in college is when you have to actually start doing more compare contrast essays in your English classes. True. True. If if I had not read the book and there was a blue book examination. I would always start <laughs> That's
0: a great
1: <laughs> I would always start with like Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby. dot dot dot
0: oh, You would always you would oh, reference yeah. Great Gatsby for everything. Absolutely. Oh, my Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And if it wasn't Great Gatsby, it was Great Expectations because you if you if you dropped in Fitzgerald or Dickens, you you could you could talk about uh, the rise of uh the economy in the 20th century you could talk about class you could talk about love you could talk about hope desires all these things yeah. Abs- dickens totally. and 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 fitzgerald great gatsby great expectations were the two books i always went to and that was good that was good for a c even in a book i hadn't read
2: <laughs> and my yeah they're like oh no, oh, this this young man likes Dickens. excellent <laughs> uh
1: Oh, we're also Araby guess, by James Joyce. You drop in Araby? Oh, shit. Bam. Hey. <laughs> <A. laughs>
2: that was for you, Julianne. <laughs> I I was, for me, a literary analysis awakening happened when I was 14 or 15, and we read Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. I've probably referenced this on the podcast before, but I, I distinctly remember <laughs> my sophomore year of high school English teacher saying, like, and Simon is Jesus. And my mind <laughs> leaked out my ears. Like, I, this is the first time someone had pointed out biblical symbolism in a way that, like, I completely right. saw. And I suddenly was like, oh, my God. So I think I, I used Lord of the Flies for a long, 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 long time for that reason. And wait, did I? I Yes, I told the story where I took the quiz. Right? On the podcast? No. I'll tell it again. No. So um, I was doing an improv show. <laughs> This is about a month ago. Um, in a high school, we were teaching a workshop, and they put us in an English classroom to uh, to warm up and, like, leave our stuff. And out on the desk was a quiz for Chapter 9 of Lord of the Flies. Oh, Jesus. And I took it. <laughs> and I haven't read the book since I was 15. And I took it, and I got a 72. And it was exact quotes. <laughs> it was like, okay, who said this line? Who said this line? And I did really well. I was really proud That's of great. That. You it. Yeah, That's got? Yeah, I was awesome. really, really, really proud
1: of it. So you got so a thanks, C minus, a 72.
2: Oh, yeah, which in high school, I would have killed myself. I would have jumped out the window. But I was so <laughs> happy with myself. That's how your standards lower over time, yeah. friends. But
1: just think, Julia, <laughs> if you had jumped out the window, everyone would have gotten an A.
2: So, writer, what about you? Do you have a blue book, fake-until-you-make-it book?
0: I, no, I don't think I do. I'm trying to think, like, I, no. When I was, I'm, I don't have, like, that, I, if I, um, you know what I have done is uh, I've, multi, multiple times, like, when I've wanted a quote for something, either a, um, I'm trying to think of examples of when I've wanted a quote, like, in a gift, or, like, if I'm writing a card for somebody and I want a quote something um i have definitely gone back to whitman leaves of grass like mm-hmm. multiple times and there's always something in song of myself that is a really just a great couple of lines for any occasion <laughs> so i, <laughs> I definitely I, like i can't wait from to, from for
1: the next the death in my family to find out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what what you send me writer yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so i definitely but that that's not the same thing as like a school essay i don't think i have like the one where but i mean I think that's a uh, fair answer. That, okay, that's good enough. Um, <laughs> but you know what I will say? I think should stay uh, in high school. I and 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 you could also use this uh, in uh, almost every. Is Shakespeare? I mean, he's he's great to reference. Like, if you if you know King Lear or Hamlet, like you can write a paper on any subject and reference those storylines and find a way to make it work. Um, but I also think that that Shakespeare should be taught in high school like as early as possible i disagree um, i disagree but go
1: ahead you you say why
0: um yeah because i i think it is at once the most intimidating and the most accessible so i think that um you know obviously if you have a bad teacher it's gonna be horrible but i think that it's the most bizarre experience for a kid you know at, at 13 or 14 or whatever to read something that is english but that doesn't make sense to you and that jarring like what is this about but then the fact of the matter is his plots are so good mm-hmm. and his characters are so well developed and if you can if you can get your brain to access Shakespeare as a contemporary american I think that that's like a revelatory moment where you go, oh, oh, I see what he's saying. It's like, you know, it's basically like breaking Mm -hmm. a code that first moment when you when you and I remember for me, it was actually the movie Much Ado About Nothing that Kenneth Branagh directed.
1: That was a good adaptation.
0: I saw it yeah. when I was, like, 11, I think, and my mom rented, you know, my brother and I, had this movie, and I didn't know, like, what Shakespeare was. I mean, I knew Shakespeare is a name, but I didn't know what... And I remember just watching this going, why are they talking like that? What is happening? And then just getting so caught up in it and, um, you know, really still not understanding everything, but that sense of, like oh, these are people and this is the way people in this sort of stylized world talk and it's beautiful and it sounds so cool and everybody sounds so smart and witty and there's so many layers of meaning that I can just keep revisiting these scenes and I think that that, you know, that's like a make or break moment for a lot of kids and, and you know, unfortunately a lot of, it turns a lot of people off to literature, but I think if you have the right teacher and you can get into that and go you know, look at what it can do what look what, you know, the right wording can can open and unlock in you emotionally and i i just think shakespeare needs to you know know what and you disagree. well i was i was
1: going to disagree with you and then i remembered something different (laughs) so i i disagree Mm -hmm. in one way which is that i really didn't understand shakespeare in high school for the most part of high school because i think the teacher that was teaching it wasn't very good in explaining it the the, they just didn't know what they were talking about i think and i had a hard time picking up the language it wasn't until a drama class that i took in my senior year in high school
0: i was where
1: say. it actually turned on for me um and yeah. and so maybe that's yeah, the difference because it's
0: pr- approached as well no i think that yeah, well, maybe you just had a better drama teacher than you oh, had English could be. teacher, that could be. you know? But I also think that, that there is something about making Shakespeare more active mm-hmm. that's, that's better. You know, like, if you can see a play... Because when you see a Shakespeare play or see a Shakespeare movie that's well done... Um, you have to you, you you pick up the plot yeah, like you absolutely. start seeing the way people are treating each other because uh, there's something elemental about Shakespeare's plots. You know, like this person doesn't like this person because that girl's behind them. Mm-hmm. You know, or whatever. It's like it's you know they 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 love the same woman so they're gonna duel it out or whatever. It's like it's very basic and and it's only complicated on the level of language and meaning that you could want to sort of peel back from right. it. so and see, if you yeah.
1: see yeah. It seeing the people acting it, it also you you understand yes. that it's funny i mean i think shakespeare yes. Oh, yes. You, you don't get how funny it is until you see it acted out on the stage when you're reading it and you're 16 and you're you know you're high on barrels and james wine coolers and you know and you're trying to read the tempest it doesn't make any fucking sense to you but when you, you see it acted out oh it's funny and it's interesting and it's about today yeah. as much as it is about the past
2: yeah, it's yeah. my active here's here's my shakespeare engagement moment so i was very committed in middle school and high school to um theater and being in all the all the plays and being in the best part i could be at and i just like it was my thing it was totally i mean it was my passion and but we you know we did one play and one musical year. And when I was a sophomore, the same year, this year was absolutely the literary awakening of my life. Uh, the, they announced that the play was going to be a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was like, I do not, I was so terrified of the language. And I was like, I don't want to do it, but I, you know, like my, my desire to be the star in the school play way overrode my like distaste and fear of Shakespeare. So I committed to it and I played Hermia and by within 2 weeks I was so deeply deeply hooked because Midsummer is hilarious it is. and it's and it's got so many characters. It's such a great play for I think all high schools should do Midsummer Night's Dream. I think that is the place for that play and, and it's play. and every you know it's just like completely Awakened, you know, 25 kids to, to Shakespeare. And it, it was so much fun. And that same year in that same English class, um, we read Romeo and Juliet. And part of the assignment was that, you know, to kill your lover, everyone had to kill your lover. Yeah. Marry someone and then poison yourself. <laughs> that was, that was the assignment for the girl. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my um, parents'
1: marriage explained. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Everyone had to act out a scene and the teacher was very very smart. I mean, he gave the kids who were most intimidated, like the broey dudes who didn't <laughs> want to do it. The opening Romeo and Juliet scene of, "Do you bite your thumb at me?" "Yes, I bite my thumb, but not at you, sir," you know, and that's so easy. I mean, that's not intimidating. And then he gave the kids who were really into it like nurse monologues and stuff. Mm. So, it, he did a really good job of g- engaging everyone with just one scene at a time and that's how you have to go with Shakespeare you can't view it as this you know huge thing where you have to read all 30 32 or 33 plays and you know you just have to go one hilarious suicide at a time you know right? you know what I
1: think <laughs> needs to be in high schools and read by everyone is to kill a mockingbird that yes. that book had the one of the most profound effects on me and it's a different book when you read it as a kid than when you read it as an adult but it's still I mean, it has all the elements you need to understand society, I think, in it, which I, I think if there's one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, if there's one thing that reading does, particularly for young people, is it opens up the ability to empathize and gives you the ability mm-hmm. to, to think critically about these things. And because it has children in it and because it's narrated in retrospect about children, I think that plays a big role. But it also, you know, it it's incredibly well written, but it's also so much about, bias and about chance and about um small towns and about politics all the things that you need to survive in the world i think exist in to kill a mockingbird and it's just wonderfully written on top of everything else
2: yeah it makes you a better person and all high schoolers need that yeah
1: and also mockingbird is good you know you you put that in some almond butter and uh, you just bake it at 350 for four hours it's delicious
2: delicious yeah (laughs) <laughs> all right. Um, wow, this is going by really fast. There's no way we're going to get to all these questions. All right, we'll just do two okay. more. Um, okay. If you could cast any actor to read any audiobook, what would that matchup be? This is from Amanda on Twitter. Oh.
1: To read any audiobook?
2: Yeah, so like Christopher Walken reading Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> that
0: would actually be
1: hysterical. <laughs> uh, wow. Um,
2: yeah, I know. It's, this is a tough
0: question. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Moby Dick. Oh. Mm.
1: Boy, that's sad that he died, by the way. Yes, it is. God, yeah. it's sad.
0: It's the, I mean, I would want to hear him read anything, but Moby Dick, I could, I would just get so into it. I'd love to hear his take on Ishmael. I think he would be a perfect Ishmael. Um,
1: oh, poor guy. You never know someone else's demons, of course, but that guy. You could see, I mean, he, he was so intimate with pain in every role that he played. It didn't matter if he was the manager of the Oakland A's in Moneyball or, oh. you know, or anything else. He, he uh, uh, I, people dying is, you know, I don't always think about people dying as a tragedy because people die, you know, but his death, that one, for someone I didn't know, it, it affected me profoundly. Um, yeah, me God, uh, you, go, you pick Julia.
2: I don't think I can pick. I think that was too good of an answer.
1: (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger reading The Giving Tree. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's a sketch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The king of the forest. I can't do it. The boy would gather all her...
1: Tree, I I will be back. (laughs) I will come back for your apples, tree. (laughs)
2: <laughs> all right, our final question. Um, this was directed towards me, but we're going to expand it out to everybody. So um, this is from Emily uh, on Facebook, and she uh, she basically ran into some people who had done an author event at the Twain House. And uh, So Emily asked, I'd love to hear about some stories about some fun, bizarre experiences with authors of the Twain House, but let's expand that to all three of us and say, what's the weirdest uh, or most fun encounter you've had with an author without alienating your own friends? Oh, Jesus. Uh, Todd's got a bunch I've got, of I've, I have a bunch <laughs> just
1: from this weekend I had an embarrassing experience with um, uh, Chad Harbach who wrote the MFA Versus New York City book but he wrote The Art of Fielding Where I just mm-hmm. I, I just geeked the fuck out in front of him I was a total idiot I, was, I just I just want to tell you how much I love your book And I saw you at the only time special books I didn't have time to go up and talk Oh god I was just I completely <laughs> clowned myself But there's worse let me think You guys go first <laughs>
0: I don't know if I have a story. I mean, I feel like I, I actually haven't met all that many authors and usually when I do it's in such a sort of like, hi, oh, how yeah, are you, shake hands kind of I'm like I don't know. I'm not I, I don't think I've been tapped into the book scene long enough to have had a whole I mean, like you guys are both in a professional function constantly dealing with authors. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should think of an That's actor true. story or something. <laughs> I feel like I Well, <laughs> I've got a couple film people.
2: Yeah, I've got a, I've got many actually because this is just such a huge part of my life. But um, one that I think you guys will I've got two that are, are great. Um, one no, I've got three. All right, I'll tell them all right. <laughs> Let me far. hear. So when Stephen King came through the Mark Twain House, um, he did an event, and you know we talked about it on many other episodes. But he <laughs> he went through the house privately, which is something that we have all all authors get to do. And if you guys ever came and visit, I'd take you on a private tour and we like pull out special stuff and like Mark Twain's pipe and first editions of Tom Sawyer. It is very cool. I did it with Stephen Dow and he basically started weeping. Oh my God. Um, It's really fun. And um, after this whole big weekend, I got, it was just me, the curator, and Stephen King. And um, it was just wonderful. It was just a great hour. But he, like almost all the... The more famous you are, the more you feel like you can just touch things, which you are not allowed to do. And then we don't say anything. Like, we don't say, like, Stephen King, pause right. off. So he touched so many things. He would just reach out and, like, stroke a chair. At one point he, like, sat down on something that, you know, just this beautiful tapestry. And I just, like, went through this house unable to experience like the joy of being with Stephen King because all I could do was see it from the museum's point of view of like look at Stephen King touching fucking everything <laughs> and uh Garrison Keillor I wasn't Stephen there for this Stephen King's one. left his DNA
0: all over the Mark Twain <laughs> hold on one
1: second I want I wanted to drop off some nut on this if you don't mind
2: <laughs> uh yeah and Garrison I wasn't here for you this I just rub is- my balls on this
1: tapestry <laughs> I hope you don't mind
0: you know, not, it's always been a dream of mine.
2: <laughs> that did not happen. Joan and just did not happen.
1: got cowboy I'm just gonna style lick on this one. Tom
0: Sawyer first edition. You don't mind, dude. I'm just going to lick it. So.
2: Um, and then another one I was, don't have uh, a right nipple
1: anymore, and I like to rub the wound on this.
2: <laughs> oh, gross. You are not invited for your private tour. Oh, I retract come on that now. On offer. <laughs> and uh, also, um, I had lunch with R.L. Stein. And at like a deli here in Hartford, and that was really fun. And I discovered something really cool, which I didn't know, which is that R.L. Stein wrote all the puppet episodes for Eureka's Castle, the TV show. That's weird. So did you guys ever watch no. it? No.
0: No, I have no idea what you're even talking
2: about. Crazy, it was a crazy, 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 crazy show. I think it was on Nickelodeon. And it was like, I mean, it's hard for me to even remember the details because it, I would only get to watch it if it was, I was like drastically ill and home. <laughs> you know and like on drugs (laughs) uh so and it was this show with this girl (laughs) yeah it was all puppets just all like dragon puppets and stuff so that that was really neat and then finally and this is the big the big one and the best one um so i i asked judy bloom to come speak at the twain house and she did and i got to interview her and she would call me like all the time at my desk. <laughs> and the first couple times I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And then after a while I was like, oh my God, Judy blue is really worried about this event. She'd call and ask about ticket sales and all that stuff. So by the time I met her, I was so nervous <laughs> and we did the interview and it was great. And there was just so many fun interactions, but, um, the best thing that happened was she during the interview in front of 400 people, including my grandparents, she was like, she's talking about, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. And she said like, yeah, I did the boob in- increasing exercises and it didn't work for me. And then she like paused and looked at me and looked down at my oh, boobs. God. And then she's like, but they worked for you. Oh
1: God. Oh Jesus. <laughs> and then oh was, my God.
2: It, it was so hilarious. Ugh. She was like a stand-up comedian. And it, I mean, it was so not embarrassing because it's Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom is the only person in the universe allowed to allowed to do right. that. Right. So that was really fun. That's you know. Fun. All right, you guys
0: got. Any? Well, I, I've
1: I've got a lot. You know, I don't know how weird. There's a lot of weird things that I've seen that I, that these are people I know, and I don't know if I can necessarily talk about them. But there are there have been some experiences I've had that I've felt otherworldly. Like there was one time I went out to dinner with Richard Russo and James Elroy before, oh before I interviewed Richard Russo on a stage. And I was sitting there talking to them. We were eating and having drinks beforehand. And uh, James Elroy just came to, to meet with him before he did this thing on stage. And I was just sitting there and I was like, this is, how, how did I get to this table where I'm sitting here with Richard Russo and James Elroy and they're complaining about things and just living the normal lives. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, you guys know me and of course the listeners know me and I'm very rarely struck quiet by anything but i just i couldn't talk i was just like oh my god here i am Mm -hmm. and i actually had a similar thing happen this week my uh i was in seattle for awp and my brother was actually there and uh the crime writer lawrence block who i've been reading since i was 12 years old and he's been writing crime fiction since the 1950s he wrote all those hard-boiled paperback books that you know you see in used bookstores he's been around forever and my brother said, hey, do you want to go out to dinner with me and Lawrence Block? And I was like, oh, yes, I do. And then I went to dinner with Lawrence Block and he was sitting there and we were just talking about whatever we were talking about. And at some point in the middle of the meal, I just, I just couldn't talk. I was just like, oh, my God. If you had told me when I was 12 years old that Lawrence Block would come out of the book and be sitting next to me eating oysters <laughs> at Elliott Bay Oyster Company. And I'd be sitting there and he'd be asking me questions about my book that's coming out. I would have said you were on fucking crack. And it was just this one of, mm-hmm. I, just a really surreal, strange moment for me. Um, and that, I mean, I think that happens in any profession where you meet the people that are the icons of your profession and they're just normal people, you know? And it, it, when they're normal people, it's awesome. When they're complete, total fucking yep. assholes, you're just like, oh God. And so there's Absolutely. there's been a lot of times where I've been um, disappointed by the people I've, idol- I've uh, idolized over the course idolized. of my life.
0: yeah.
1: And um, that, I mean, that, th- then you just realize, oh, they're just assholes like I am, you know, and they don't give a fuck about me. Just like <laughs> I... Well, maybe
2: <laughs> you realize yeah, that. Yeah,
1: I realize that. <laughs> but it's something that, um, I, I remember when I met, um, the, I was very fond of this band called Drama Rama that was out in the 80s and early 90s. And I had a friend who got me backstage passes to a concert of theirs, and... I, you know, I was there singing to all the songs, and it was awesome. And then I get backstage, and I meet John Easdale, who was the lead singer. And I was, you know, I was, like, 20. And I'm like, oh, my God, could you tell me about what the meaning was behind this song, Baby Rhino's Eye? And he was uh, clearly on heroin. And, <laughs> and he's like, oh, man, it's about love and peace and rock Hudson and the news and I'm like I'm sorry it's about what (laughs) and he's like or it's about whatever you want it to be and he was just like all "Eh." it's like Uh, someone had removed all the muscles and bones from his body and he was basically just a voice and skin Um, and I just realized oh right this is a drug addict right okay (laughs) and it really it changed the way I felt about the band for a long time um but you know i just i got him on a bad day you know i got him i got him when the heroin was high but and i'm sure writer that you experience this probably more than i do but when i meet someone who is a fan of my work i want them to have a good experience with with you know talking to me i don't i don't want to be a dick and but you know the thing is is that i've as you guys know i i have a fairly happy-go-lucky personality and then someone even someone reads an essay of mine that's particularly sad, and they want to talk to me about their dead mothers, and I'm like, oh, oh, we're having a dead mother conversation now, okay? And it's you know, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to sort it's of sh- shift a that gear right, and it, it's yeah. a weird experience, and, and so I empathize with with anyone who has weird experiences with with interesting people. My,
0: my most awkward interaction with a celebrity. This is not a writer event, but this is this is a great moment. In okay. My life. So, um, I'm on a cruise ship. <laughs> uh, well, that was. <laughs> nightmare No, this was not embarrassing for me, so I was but uh, yeah, I was okay. So, god, I'm trying to remember how all these threads came together. So, Boy Meets World is filming, we're in our must have been our 6th or 7th season, so we're we're older. So I was probably 18 or 19 and uh for some reason there was a relationship between our show and the monkeys the band Oh, my god <laughs> uh, i think it was that one of our executive producers was good friends with a couple of the monkeys so if you look at the all seven seasons of boy meets world almost every monkey appears except for the one who like refused to ever do anything michael nesmith again. yeah but yes okay yes. so you know their name oh right. i'm a big monkey so, fan so we were like we had like we had a lot of monkeys on our show at different times. Like first, Peter Tork played Topanga's dad for an episode, and then um, whatever. By this time, Mickey Dolenz decided he wanted to be a director, so Mickey Dolenz was directing an episode of Boy Meets World. And while he's there on set, also at this time, Daniel Fishel, who played Topanga, is dating Lance Bass from <laughs> oh, <N-Zick>, Jesus. He <laughs> turned out right. to be gay, and we, you know. <laughs> So she's coming to set and saying, you know, he doesn't really want to make out. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, they're it still that good really good friends. Happen. Yes, it really happened. They're still really good friends. And, it, you know, honestly, we didn't say, like, oh, he's so gay, but it was like, oh, he must be really Christian or something. Anyway. So the members of NSYNC are visiting our set while Mickey Dolenz. Oh, is that, there. Oh, that is a
1: nexus. Oh, that's so, weird.
0: Exactly. So I am in, great. I am at Craft Service having a conversation with Justin Timberlake. And we're just talking about careers and life and his career. And he says, you know, they want us to do a TV show. And I'm just like, oh, why? And Mickey Dolan's is oh, right behind him at that oh, point. God. And he goes, why not? Why wouldn't you want oh, to do a God. TV show? And I watched Justin Timberlake look at Mickey Dolenz, make the connection. Oh right, the monkeys were famous because they did a TV oh show. He did this whole calculation, and then I had watched him have to like well, it's just not really my thing. Oh, I'm God. just gonna... <laughs> and, like, oh, try to, try to watch Justin Timberlake, like pull himself out of the grass oh, of having God. just insulted Mickey Dolan's oh. entire career. Cause it's like, I mean, you know, I mean, I forget exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of like, I mean, what a boy band and a TV show that would just oh, be, and God. it was like, and there he <laughs> is. Oh, Jesus. Oh, it's the greatest, like, collision. And you know that Justin Timberlake is going, what are the chances? I've come to visit Boy Meets World, and what, a monkey happens to be here? (laughs)
1: That, that, I would have paid good money to see that. Jesus. There's nothing more entertaining than someone else being embarrassed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, well, so kind. Well, um, listeners, thank you. Those were awesome questions. We'll do this again sometime if you guys liked it. Good questions, yeah.
1: If, I, um, if I'm ill yeah, any time in the near future, absolutely, we should do this again.
2: All right, well, everybody go pick up a book and be careful that it doesn't... Don't read it bare-chested. <laughs> I'm just going to put it that <laughs> well, way. Well, you
1: got to have my kind of body. If okay. you're doughy, absolutely <laughs> don't get a big hardback book. If you're well-sculpted, if you're like Channing Tatum, keep it's fine. Yeah, on. keep your shirt on. But as you know also, Julia uh, cannot read a book with her shirt off. Judy Bloom let us all know that. <laughs>